This episode of All the President's Minutes is brought to you by two One Heat Minute productions. The first, Increment Vice, 45 episodes, deep diving on Paul Thomas Anderson's 2014 masterpiece based off Thomas Pynchon's novel, Inherent Vice, called Increment Vice. Hosted by Travis Woods, produced by myself, Blake Howard, and narrated by the awesome Cat Corbett, takes... And a myriad of unbelievable guests through this sort of stoner noir masterpiece. Megan Abbott, Jordan Harper, Drew McWeeny, Matt Zoller-Zeitz, Walter Chaw, Karina Longworth, Ryan Johnson. Get listening. And if you're into fiction, it came from the deep. Maria Lewis, the host of our Josie and the Podcasts podcast, is here with her very own audiobook, It Came From The Deep, and an after show, co-hosted by myself. That's in its own feed. It Came From The Deep, Increment Vice, search them wherever you get your podcasts. Now, a huge fan of this show. For you. Haldeman came to me. He said, the president wants a tape recording system. The Secret Service has a technical security division, electronics guys and communications guys. So that's who I went to. The the first thing, he indicated, he intimated that they had done this before. He didn't say, yeah, we did it for Johnson. Yes, we did it for this president or that. But, and he also indicated these things usually don't work out very well. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. It's 125 minutes into Alan J. Pakula and Robert Redford's 1976 masterpiece, All the President's Men. And along this entire crazy process, what happens is you start to unearth all of the president's heads. I don't know what we're called. We don't really have a name, but there's just people out there who are obsessed with this movie. You know, the clinically obsessed ones are people like Aaron Sorkin and Steven Soderbergh and David Fincher. Um, and then you start to drum up others. And now very recently it I was, it was brought to my attention that my guest today has had a custom oil painting of Ben Bradley in his beautiful pressed velvet suit, walking out of the Washington post newsroom, tapping his finger in the run that baby moment of the movie, which couldn't be more on brand for this podcast. So instantly you would know that that means that that person had to be a part of the show. Now that's could be enough. That could be their resume enough. If you have a custom made picture of that, you should be on this show. However, this person is also a a voice of an incredibly massive cult animation series is an actor, um, both in sort of famous cult independent films and other big movies, and also as foot fetishists on Sex and the City, um, has been a sometimes podcaster around the place, but mostly uh, plies his wares um, right now in in pandemic time and where I've interacted with him and seen him around the traps on Twitter. And it was brought to my attention that right there that he was the guy to be on this show it's my distinct pleasure to welcome James Abaniak to All the President's Minutes. My friend, thank you so much for being a part of the show. This is crazy. Blake, thank you so much. I'm delighted. It was sort of through a Twitter accident, I think, that you discovered I was yes. such a fan of the movie. Yes. I yeah. actually posted some clips to the film like a week ago. Yeah. Because I was watching, I, re, I revisited constantly. So yeah. I was doing one of my regular revisits. And uh, it suddenly amused me how... Uh, this is very sidebar, but this is a podcast for this movie. So I guess it's front bar, actually. It's absolutely front bar. Uh, <laughs> uh, a major motif in the film is the Canuck letter, 
a, uh, a, a forged letter that was written to challenge the Muskie candidacy. It's rather absurd to describe uh, 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 Nixon's Dirty Tricks people uh, wrote a letter to a New Hampshire newspaper where it was reported that uh, Muskie, who was the Democratic frontrunner in the 72 race, uh, had slurred Canadians. Apparently there were a lot of French Canadian people in New England and New Hampshire uh, where, you know, the caucuses were and stuff. And uh, this apparently was a huge issue. It was, it, it, it basically <laughs> took down his entire candidacy. Down. And then he famously gave a press conference in the snow saying this didn't happen and snow is melting on his face. And it's always been an open question if he got emotional and cried. So the other side said, look at this weak pussy uh, and uh, who hates the French Canadians. Could you think of a worse person? Anyway, they mentioned this letter like four or five times in the movie and each time they mentioned it, usually Hoffman, but at one time, uh, Mr. Redford say something like, yeah, it's the, uh, the Canuck letter. You know, the letter that uh, killed Muskie's candidacy. There's always a little, you know, type disclaimer. And so I collected all these explanations where someone will say, the Canuck letter. You mean the letter that uh, <laughs> where he slurred the Canadians? Because they, even <laughs> though these events happened two years before the movie came out, they still feel, yeah, no one really knows what this is. Only the, the 1976 equivalent of political Twitter would have known what the Canuck letter was. Exactly. 76. But I, so I kind of, I posted that and then I forget if it was you or someone else who mentioned your podcast. I, I, I don't know who, who retweeted it into my timeline, but you, you, yeah. pop, you popped up because someone, someone, someone of my friends goes like retweeted it and like tagged me and was like, uh, Blake. Exactly. Someone and I said, you should be on the, all the president's been, uh, all the president's minutes podcast. And I said, tell me more. <laughs> And then, yes. and then we ended up connecting. Within, within seconds later, I was like, hello, yeah, James. Yeah, you, you found me immediately. I was like, DM me. But then I mentioned to you, uh, I was sort of pitching myself. <laughs> As if pitching a video of Dustin Hoffman talking about the Canuck letter in each scene didn't show that I'm obsessed with the film enough. Two years ago for Christmas, my darling wife, Sarah, uh, got me a commissioned an oil painting from a painter friend of hers. She's a visual artist. And so she knows a lot of artists and a very talented painter, a guy named Kevin Schmidt, actually. Uh, he does pop cultural paintings. He does like paintings of scenes from movies or TV shows. That's part of what he does. So she sent him behind my back a screenshot of my favorite acting moment, which like everything in the movie is incredibly subtle. That's what yes. we love about the movie. Yes. And you described it. It's after uh, Jason Robards confirms that they can run the uh, John Mitchell story. And it's the end of the day. It's like probably 7 or 8 p.m. The office is empty except for the boys and the boss. He's wearing, as you said, evening clothes because it's D.C. and he's a player. And he's off to go to some banquet or something, which is such another great detail that's never mentioned. No, He's never and, like, and I've got to go to this dinner for Catherine Graham. He's just going somewhere fancy. He's going somewhere. And it's never explained why <laughs> no, a guy who doesn't wear it, so, who barely wears a tie in the whole movie, is in a complete bow tie, yeah. beautiful pressed suit. It, he looks stunning. And he walks and out he of there like... obviously, like, like he, he changed in his office. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And then as he leaves, he's like, he famously says to them, run that baby. Uh, the story that's going to out Mitchell as uh, a major factor in the, uh, the cover-up and the flush fund and so forth. And as he leaves, we see his back and he betrays his excitement by just tapping the desk tapping and then the desk. clapping his hands a little bit, a little slap in the hand. It's just a little, and that's it. And it's such a loaded moment. 
Uh, it's his version of doing an end zone dance, except it's just a little, he doesn't go, woo, he just goes. Nah. And that's, and that's, and that performance, by the way, is one of the things that brought me into the movie. It's one of my all time favorite film performances is Robards as Ben Bradley. But indeed, and so uh, my wife was aware that this was a favorite scene of mine. And then uh, Christmas two years ago, one of my presents was that very image, beautifully painted by Mr. Schmidt. So oh, well, Mrs. Hangs, it hangs in our living room. Mrs. Schmidt and Sarah, <laughs> Sarah your wife for commissioning it. Mr. Mr. Kevin Schmidt for, for, for actually putting it together. I wrote it down his name yeah. because I know that almost every uh, person who's been on this show who has since seen that, like filtering around the internet or come back and seen us interacting about it going, yes. that is the most beautiful piece that is stunning and very, very on brand for this show. But look, it's, I mean, yes. you, you as an obsessive <laughs> who have watched this movie enough, countless, like, times. countless, it is unfathomable to most people how much his performance doesn't get old and how those oh, infinitesimal man. details become these huge things where you can just go back and watch him in every way, in every part of this movie over and over again. And yeah. I, and I agree. I, I, I can't get enough of those scenes with the boys. Like, did he really say that? Cause especially Mitchell who is, really actually played really beautifully in Aaron Sorkin's new movie, uh, Trial of Chicago 7. He's played by John Doman, who's uh, Sergeant Rawls from The Wire. Oh, um, plays plays yeah. John Mitchell. I, I actually don't remember Mitchell. I, I watched it a couple of weeks ago. So John, John Randolph was the voice, who is uncredited. He's the, they vo found, yes. he's the voice of John Mitchell, who is so identifiable in this movie. Yeah. John Randolph was a big uh, actor in New York. I'm also obsessed with actors, so I go into a lot of corners. <laughs> no. John Randolph was a big actor in New York. Uh, he sort of came up in the sort of the, well, he's probably of the generation that, you know, at least the forties. Uh, yeah. And it's sort of an old, it was also sort of an old lefty. I think he may have, if he wasn't blacklisted, he was blacklisted Jason. So it's kind of a sweet <laughs> uh, little meta joke that uh, a lefty actor is playing John Mitchell. <laughs> like, what time yeah. is it? What, what his voice? Is it? Uh, I, 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 <laughs> Uh, it's 11 o'clock uh, in the morning. So, no, at night, at night. So. <laughs> I, I, there's a couple of phone performances that I always want to replicate in my life that I don't have enough balls to do. One is the John Mitchell, like, what time is it? And then AM or PM if I'm frustrated on the phone. And the go. other is the Al Pacino from Heat, which is just when you get the answer that you don't want on the phone, you say, that's wonderful, and you just hang up. Um, so, well, there's lots of Heat lines. And I know you did a Heat podcast. I did. Heat is, is the height of uh, what I call Pacino's Baroque period. <laughs> Where he really—I'm not saying it's bad; it's good. But no, it's no, a, no. As we I all love, know, I love, it's, I love it's, that. I love that turn of phrase, though. He's it's a hyper-expressionistic form of acting. Yeah. My favorite Pacino line reading in that many people, of course, is uh, because she's got a great ass. Yeah. Which is a great line reading, but my favorite is the line "Give me all you've got," which he says like it's one syllable. He goes, <laughs> "I gotta go away from like <laughs> something like that when he's. And yeah. he's shaking the table. And I love, <laughs> yeah, I love exactly. how And then he smacks Norm! his lips. <laughs> he, then he smacks his lips and pretends like he's normal for a second as Vincent Hanna in that scene. It's just wonderful. Like, give me all you got. And then he comes yeah. back and it's there. But no, I, I, I can't get enough of him. I can't get enough of this movie. And there's a hypnotic quality. I do it. And it's so comforting to talk to another person who does it, which is I watch this movie as comfort viewing all the time. Like yes. it would just, just, you can just watch it and there is a rhythm. And there is just a confidence and there is a swagger in the Bradley performance. And there's just such a capable thing happening that it's like, it's never yeah. not valuable to just, just 
to be impressed by it, even if it's there's just a, a There's passing. a swagger, but part of the power of that performance, it is actually a performance of a person in power. It's a yes. performance of power. Yes. But the way that he withholds the power in a sense, he, he doesn't, he raises his voice now and then, but usually he just kind of talks in this kind of uh, lower, quiet, lower register. Yeah. And his body language is ostensibly casual. He's got his feet up on the thing, you know, on the desk. But it, it, it's just the power just emanates off this guy uh, in this sort of extraordinary way. And, um, and, then, and then there's the great humor. It's also a very funny script. Very. Great script. So there's lots of humor and he really delivers all the, uh, you know, nothing's rotting on this except the uh, First <laughs> Amendment, the Constitution, the freedom of the press, and possibly the freedom to country. Not that any of that matters. If you guys fuck up again, I'm going to get mad. <laughs> I, 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 any actor would like to deliver a, a little speech like that. And any, it's one of the greatest monologues. It's, it's, it's nearly a 60 second monologue. It's one of the greatest scenes in the history of cinema. Yeah, if you no, guys I'm, fuck up again, I'm going to get mad. But I, I love even the line before it, which is not that any of that matters. Like those three not that things. Any of that so great. I remember seeing an interview with Ben Bradley years ago. And they were talking about uh, the film. <laughs> and he said, well, I didn't really curse like that. I mean, I didn't talk like that. <laughs> what else I've got just about his betrayal. But, I'm sure Ben Bradley engaged in some shop talk, as we say. Well, the real Ben Bradley himself also was very well known for being proud. It was like, Jason Robards played me. He got a freaking yeah. kick that Cable Hogue played him. Like he got a kick out of it. And I think everyone that's on that set for a guy who, you know, multiple Oscar winner had such a reputation of like being this like Titanic force. Um, yes. You don't, what strikes me and even in the first viewings, it's so hard to even imagine what a first viewing would be like for this movie. But when you watch it, it's not like a star. He's not like a movie star in a traditional movie star way. But from the moment that you even see Woodward glance over to his office, like yeah. which is now basically a hundred minutes ago in this film, you know how important he is. And the gravity of that entire newsroom then tilts and he is the most important figure in it. And they are writing articles for his approval in, in many ways along the way. And yeah. there's just something so powerful about that. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite moments is the first meeting with Bradley for the first story. Yes. Stick it inside someplace. Uh, <laughs> when, uh, and, where they, and, and also Hoffman and Redford are wonderful because if the power is emanating off of, uh, off of Jason Robards, the, the nervousness oh. is, uh, is emanating off of the boys and it's really great. And, and uh, Hoffman's sort of excitement and, and also, it's it's their it's totally their characters. Hoffman immediately calls him out on his note. <laughs> you know his rewrite. Imagine having the stones to call out Ben Bradley on the yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then there's the great moment where Bradley just throws him a look. Doesn't say anything. Just throws him a look. You really gonna do this? Is sort of the what's implied. And and Hoffman retreats. It's so great. And the film is just full of wonderfully subtle moments like this. Also, I gotta say, I'm gonna use this word a lot, but Subtle is just a style. It doesn't mean that a subtle movie is better. No. Uh, it's just a style. And the thing is, in this case, it, it's just one of the all-time great, powerful, subtle movies. 
Like yeah. Sunset Boulevard is a masterpiece as great as this. And it's not subtle and that's not a put down. It's no. just a different style. That has a more Baroque, uh, yes. very big style. The whole movie is Baroque. Yeah. Whole, and yeah. that's what it is. And yeah. it should be that because it's about yeah. that kind of person. And, yes. but this is about a couple of schmucks just kind of going through library cards and calling people and it, it should be quiet yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and it shouldn't call attention to itself. And yet that's the power of the movie. And so the performances do that as well, but every aspect of the film does that. Yeah. Just, so a, cu- just a couple of minutes ago as people are listening to it. So folks, if this is your first episode, welcome. You're listening because of James. <laughs> Thank you so much for being a part of the show, but a couple of episodes, I got to speak to a wonderful actor um, and now writer Caroline Goodall. So she's in movies like Hook and Disclosure and Schindler's List and Cliffhanger. People would know her from. She's recently turned her hand at writing and at a little thriller called The Bay of Silence. And Caroline Goodall, she just said something to me, James, the other day about the acting in the scene, in sort of the after uh, after effects of the wood scene. You know, when you hear Bradley call out wood scene and they yes. sort of rush to the office. There's a moment when Ziegler's on the TV screen and they're in the office that. Carolyn Goodall just said, from my experience being on sets as an actor, she said, I can tell that Alan Pakula asked them to take the air out of the scene. She's like, you mm-hmm. walk into, and, and all of the tension that you expect from Bradley's big wood stain into that cavernous newsroom and have them like scutter from the other one side all the way in, into his office. Then you have Martin Balsam and you have, and, and just, I mean, it's, absolutely outlandish these actors you've got jack warden and then you've got bradley all yeah, sort of there i love them all yeah. i love them all and they all are just reeking this thing like i'm not mad i'm disappointed and taking the air out of that scene almost is a greater agony that any sort of screamy yelly dressing down could That's ever true. do to you i mean you can see anger in robart's face but you can actually also see sadness and even kind of devastation Yes. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. What did you do? We had so much faith in you too. Yeah. And then it's, it is, it is excruciating because no one's saying anything and you're just listening to this news report drone on. Yes. And then, and then these, uh, and of course this is their, this is the big national mistake they made where yes. they, where they say that uh, Hugh Sloan had they, they, they revealed in his they, grand in his, jury testimony. In his grand jury testimony, yeah. So not the, the, the fact of the matter is and why Bradley gets to write something that is in the lead up of the minute that we're going to uh, watch together, but it's it's that they named Haldeman and that Sloan named him in the grand jury testimony and no one ever asked Sloan in the grand yes. jury about Haldeman. So they're, they're, they're right in the sense that Haldeman was the fifth guy, but they're wrong on this minor detail. But yes. it is a detail that's wrong. And so the floodgates just open up yes. and the, the Nixon <laughs> White House and all of their uh, um, enablers just pile on. This the way it would happen today. If the New York Times got one little detail wrong about the Trump administration or something. Oh, Trump, you know. that Trump, all of Trump's White House press secretaries are the spawn of Ziegler. Oh, like, 100%. Like hostile towards the journalists, hostile Absolutely. towards media, non-denial denials. That, that. I know, and they tend to be sort of young. Ziegler's like a 30-ish guy. He <laughs> yeah. looks just like, what's his face? Trump's first press secretary. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when I'm Dancing with spice, the Stars, spice. yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm slowly letting the past... Uh, look, memory's already. I'm glad that I'm already forgetting names of people in the Trump administration. Oh, it's so funny. <laughs> so good. Uh, but yeah, but, they're, um, they're all singing his playbook, though. They're all. They oh, love it. The, they are like Christmas has come early. This yes. is so great that they fucked up. Yeah. 
And uh, yeah, and then that's, so the stakes are, so then they're really freaking out when we get to our sequence where they go back and check with their FBI source. So make sure they weren't wrong. So let's go, if you are watching this on, it should be the same. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Aim on DVD, on Blu-ray, on video on demand, your two hours yes. and four minutes on the dial. James and I are going to watch the minute together right now as they sort of have quite a hostile exchange with Joe, their FBI source. And then we're going to go back into an editorial meeting at the Washington Post. Right. Uh, let's, let's do it. I'm talking about it. I am not talking to you about Haldeman or anybody else. In fact, I can't even be seen talking to either one of you Why? bastards. Why? What are you afraid of? Who got to you? Who are we you? being set up? Are we, Joe? Tell us. Are we being set up? Just tell us. We won't print it. What fuck are you laughing you. at? Fuck you. Thanks to God, I just don't know this. Oh, it's in the notes. Yeah, we had another call all along. Listen, I've got another call. I've got to go. Did you meet Bob Haldeman? Yeah, Bob Jesus, what was our mistake? Maybe there was no mistake. Then they're just setting us up. And the whole thing was a setup. And they just hung us. More denunciations. Gonna have to make a statement, Ben. One senator just gave a speech slurring us 57 times in 20 minutes. I knew we had enemies, but I didn't know we were this popular. Very good. <laughs> the true tragedy for someone like you who loves this movie as much as I know you do is me making you only watch 60 seconds of it. And uh, have to That's not continue right. that scene. Yes. So this is the game that we play. I love so much about that scene, and I just love them walking out of this. And, and in the previous minute, I spoke to a, a, a friend of the show, John Glynn, and he talked about like it's weird that you don't get an establishing shot when you start the Joe scene when they're sort of asking him where they went wrong in this story. But I've always loved that once they walk out of this building and they completely dwarfed by this big, you know, Department of Justice building, these two guys walking out there and they're all by themselves. Yeah. I just can't get enough of them going, we're not wrong. They hung us. It's just such a powerful visual scene. And uh, I just, I love it. And then obviously going back into the, the bluster of the office as we do at the end, but I just, I can't get enough of that, how isolated they feel in that moment. Yeah. And that's kind of a motif where we see the two of them while other things are going on. Yes. It's just like, you know, that's how the movie ends. Is, is you know, the Nixon's being inaugurated and you know, they're just plugging away. Talking. One of my favorite moments like that is, is the uh, earlier in the film, of course, where uh, they're, they're both writing and other people in the, uh, in the background in the newsroom are watching something on television and they're yes. all gathered around and we don't know what it is. <laughs> we were watching it the other day and my wife said, maybe there was a, maybe there's a game on. <laughs> like, <laughs> the Redskins just won a game or something. <laughs> but, it, but it's definitely not Watergate related or Nixon no. related, I believe. So it's just like, here's some news that everyone's interested in. And then oh, no. these two schmucks I, are just I think, sitting I here. Th I think that scene <laughs> is the Nixon renomination. 
Oh, it's the renomination. Yeah, it's the renomination scene. Yeah, so it, it in the middle of the movie, but that's but that's exactly right. So these guys could care less about what is a huge thing, a renomination of, of exactly. an incumbent, and all that sort of stuff. These guys are still clattering away on those, you know, those yeah. keyboards to, to trying to make that happen. And yeah, in this moment, it's just brilliant. They walk out, and there's a great moment also after the deep throat scene that um, that Woodward walks out of around it's about 109 minutes into the movie where he walks out and he has that freak out moment where he thinks that someone's following him. Yes. And as he's walking back to go to the post, it's just another moment of the whole of Washington, which has now sort of felt like a hive, like there's lots of activity, like they're trying to find this story. It's one of these few moments where Washington feels empty and it feels like there's all these just hostile government buildings where people are inside plotting against (laughs) them. And they're just these little ants that are just trying to penetrate these impossible things. And I, yeah, I mean, we are so close to the climax of this movie. We're essentially 12 minutes away from the ending. And, you know, I just can't get enough of the genius choices of like how much of the plot hangs on the final moments of the story. And the fact that Joe, who appears to be a sympathetic source, yes. works for the FBI, but he, like everyone involved, everyone connected to the establishment, seemed actually more terrified of Haldeman than of Nixon. That's another recurring thing. Yes. Once Haldeman's name comes out, everyone's like, I'm not going to say anything about you get nothing. You get nothing from me on Haldeman. Yeah, it's like Haldeman is Jimmy Conway from Goodfellas. <laughs> like they're all afraid of getting whacked. You know, like, I can imagine is- Haldeman smoking, <laughs> watching after Lufthansa oh, heist, dude, just, dude, dude, just dude, ha- deciding dude, how he's going to kill some people. Yeah, hundred percent. He was trying to separate everyone between him and the robbery. <laughs> <laughs> him and the him and the break in. Oh my um, god! Yeah, but so Joe, because that scene, I think when Joe really gets angry and says "fuck you," I think it's because he's actually offended that they would think he would be involved in setting them up. Yes, but he's 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 impotent. He's he's a victim of the institutional fear. It's the FBI, but they're afraid of Haldeman, and they can only go so far. Yes, and and I think when he's basically he's on their side, but he's just he re, he just represents the institution of what's supposed to be law enforcement and investigation, and there's nothing he can do. It's, and then it's, he just loses it because he's he's upset. <laughs> it's 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 really funny. It was only like today I was doing a bit of more research around Mark Felt and and why he maybe had hostility towards Nixon and and things for upcoming mm-hmm. episodes. And I learned that when Nixon started, he put a, a a former submarine commander who was a complete outsider of the FBI as the head of the FBI. Right after Jagger Hoover, in order so that he could control that that entire arm of law enforcement, because he wanted the control of the Justice Department, and so there's this great thing of you know even though Joe has been a low level FBI agent and he's been their great source, it's like exactly as you just said, James. Nixon actually has his hooks in there. So Holderman, ultimately Nixon slash Holderman, like all in yeah. inner circle, ultimately still control these arms of the FBI, and why you can kind of later understand why a Mark felt would be compelled. Like the only way that this is going to get out because we're being hamstrung from the investigation is to leak is to leak this information in any way that we can. So yeah, it's really funny. Like the fear is real here. We've got to go to your boss. When he says you've got to go to your boss, it's like, there's not many swears in this movie. There's not too many, but like, you know, 
fuck you, fuck you. I'm not yeah. dealing with you, bastards. Like, it's like, whoa, what's happening, Joe? Yeah, like, I can't what's even going be seen talking to you, two bastards. <laughs> you got to stammer some his words. Such a great moment. Such a great moment. And he's never been a fearful guy to this point. In fact, he was congratulatory on their story that kind of nailed the structure of, um, it kind of nailed the structure of the, the, the fund at the committee to reelect the president. But it's so funny now. We're talking about Haldeman and how fearful they are. The last time that Joe mentioned Haldeman, other than being on the phone, you had Haldeman as the fifth guy. We didn't have that. We didn't have, yeah. oh, yet Mitchell's the fifth. We didn't have that. Right then and there, as the connections between Nixon and, and Mitchell and those five guys and then Haldeman start way, way back in the film. There's that random guy who's standing outside the White House in the line as a tourist who turns his camera around and takes a little couple snapshots of Hoffman <laughs> and Joe, which is, I think, the scariest character in this whole movie. That's fantastic. It's, it's so freakish. So it's right then we start to wow, see the Wow, that's great. And there you go. That's a detail that I don't remember. I'll have yeah. to look for that. You got to look. There's a guy in the White House line. He turns his camera around. And instead of taking photos of the monuments, he's taking a photo of Hoffman That is and fantastic. Joe. Yeah, there you go. Every time something new. <laughs> Every time something new. And then Joe literally says in that first scene where he meets him outside, he, he literally says, I follow, I follow my orders. <laughs> I yeah. was only following orders. <laughs> like yeah, he, yeah it's, uh, that's, that's going around. That's going around. Yeah. Shall we oh, say exactly. <laughs> Shall we say that's going around? It's an off-told story. God, God. Um, sometimes people have said, you know, that this movie is a salve. And when you watch it sort of rhythmically in the pattern that you do, is it, it, has that changed in 2020 for you now? Like, because this movie for me has always been a salve because of it's just meticulous sort of you know, work ethic, but it's also just effortlessness and just like how good you can make something when you're really deliberate yeah, about how you a, make it. It's true. In a crazy way, it is a feel good movie. Yes. But I think, I think the 2020 aspect is like we say, Sean Spicer was the name I couldn't remember. Yes. But uh, that, yeah, when you see like Ziegler or just all the, a lot of the, um, the real life people who you see on the, uh, on the TV, yes. the members of the administration and, and uh, stuff, um, their language, even the way they speak, their cadence is, is perennial. It just reminds you of the way Trump's people speak. Yes. Uh, and when they dismiss, you know, anything, <laughs> any accusations. Uh, and so that, that, that makes you kind of bristle a little bit. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I don't know. I'm drawn to it for many reasons. Just the, 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 the acting, the, 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 I'm an actress, so I'm obsessed with actors, but this, the time period, the story, I was born in 63. So I, I have memories of being a, a little kid, you know, like, 10 years old and watching the Watergate hearings on TV, like wow. them just being on TV, that being ubiquitous. Another thing I was trying to remember today, which I couldn't, is when I saw, first saw this film. Because I do remember the first time I've seen some other classic films, but I really don't remember. So I, I, I was probably like a young man. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I certainly didn't see it. I wasn't interested in seeing it when I was 13, when it came yeah. out. But I probably saw it when I was like maybe 19, 20, 21, maybe on, Network TV, I assume it was shown on like network TV. Yeah. Uh, but uh, since then I, I had a DVD of it, you know, I, I, 
I have seen it projected. I, I've seen it a lot of times. And yeah, I, I, and, and in the last few years, I've, I've been writing a little. And so I also now, it's just sort of a touchstone for me. I, I check in with it. Sometimes I draw from the acting. Lately, I'm drawing from the writing. Yes. How beautifully structured it is. Uh, so yeah, there's just so much to draw from. But it is just purely pleasurable too. It's really just, it's just an old fashioned movie in a sense, <laughs> beyond the subject matter. Beyond you know? the subject, yeah. I these, two, these two little guys uh, suddenly gain a superpower and uh, take on the bad guys. <laughs> <laughs> and and I had I've had a couple of friends who say Blake, you're obsessed with this movie. It's made in sort of 1975, 76. It's about the events of Watergate that happened in the United States. It's just a quintessential American story. Why do you even care? Like what what was what resonated with you? And I said, I don't. I, I can't tell you what resonated with me is in as much as when I was doing my last project, like the first project that we did on this, which is One Heat Minute. Every day I couldn't watch Heat because I was watching it as part of the research of the show. And so if I wanted to watch something for comfort, I would watch this movie. And, the, and, the, <laughs> yeah. and I always loved it. Like I loved it all the time. If you, you know, if you ask my wife what movies are always in a high rotation in our house, she would say like, you know, all the president's men and she would say Heat and she would say Fargo and she would say there's just certain ones that just are constant rotation. And it was always on. And then it was in the process of, you know, like you said, as you're a writer and you're kind of looking at it as a touchstone, I was watching and unpacking a movie that I thought was a masterpiece every day and examining it like ruthlessly in heat. And I was watching all the president's men as comfort. And then I started ruthlessly unpacking it before I even began this show going, there's no fat on this thing. Yeah. Why does the, why does the music do that? Look at all these performances. Oh my God. Like, wait, you're telling me there's 12 minutes to go and they still haven't like gotten to a climax and the end is basically these two guys stuffing up. Um, you know, like, oh, why, are they, why are they talking in a scene outdoors and letting planes fly overhead? That must have been- Oh, I love thing. that moment too. I love it too. And I've often wondered if that was actually, because anyone who's done filmmaking knows that's a constant you hold for the plane if you're shooting outdoors. Yes. And I wonder if that was- uh, an accident, which they thought would be fun to not hold for the plane because they're in DC and it's just part of the environment. Uh, it's so good. There's lots of little moments like that where it's just sort of the detail of the reality of that city. Yes. Uh, like they're on, they're on the steps of uh, the Capitol and some, some girls in like school uniforms are coming down. And presumably those are extras who were hired Kids had to show up that morning and, and, and wardrobe had little costumes for them. Yes. But it just seems so real. It, it, just, it just gives the sense. Like I say, life goes on. Life's going on. There's people coming on tours here. Yes. Uh, another thing I really love is the production design is really brilliant. Yes, uh, it is. George Jenkins is the production designer. I looked him up. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's George Jenkins and George Gaines because the way that yeah, George Gaines is the is the set dresser. Set, set dresser, and they they collectively won the production design Oscar for this movie. Well, for... there's the production design is incredible. The movie was the interiors were shot in L.A. They're shot yeah. at Warner Brothers in Burbank. The exteriors are in D.C., but it's so seamless. By the way, sidebar, I've looked this up. One of the stages they shot on was stage 11 at Warner's and I'm actually, work is starting up again, amazingly, uh -huh. in Hollywood, as we say. And I'm actually shooting a thing oh uh, starting next week that's shooting on stage 11. So I'm excited. To <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know what set was there. 
I don't know that, that if, if it was the office or if it was like, you know, the Sloan's house, but um, no, I'm that, excited to have some little cosmic connection with the film. You're going to be there and you're going to be there in the newsroom because that's what was there in Burbank. That's they, they read. Well, they, they shot in a few stages. So yeah. one of them would have been the newsroom another, and I don't know what that one, was. but anyway, yes. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> where the, 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 the only other thing I would say, which is like the hyper specific sort of brilliance of this movie is, um, I had a great guest of the show, um, come on and, and spot, uh, when Miami, when the background of the, out of the window of Dardis's window was not Miami. They're like, no, uh-huh. Miami doesn't have any hills. Was, it was the only Oh my like, God, that's it, hilarious. It was like the only spot. I was like, no, yeah, I've grown up in Miami all my life. There's no hills. So it, obviously that's doubling for LA. Um, uh, but, yes. But, it, but it's, you know, there's just something magical. There's something really magical about this whole, the whole movie and the way that it all gels together. Um, and particularly in this scene, again, another scene that ends with Bradley's feet up on the desk, you know, like the yes, final his, frame, the final frame that we're looking at. Shoes really scuffed shoes and they're just all around the editorial table he starts writing his little note which uh which we can slightly cheat with but i think if we talk about what brought me to this movie over and again it's the phrase fuck it we'll stand by the boys yeah fuck it we'll stand with we'll stand by the boys we stand by our story holy crap such a, an amazing sentiment such an amazing sentiment Oh, look, James, it's been a real treat talking to you. I hope, that, I, hope, I hope the universe of stage 11 at Warner Brothers gives you, uh, you can learn more about that next week and whatever you're doing. It's great. But look, it's been a, yeah, it's just been a real treat to geek out. Oh, with you thank you. This. That's it. That's it. That's it. I mean, look, Wonderful. We, we, we could probably talk for about five more hours about every other element of the movie. I but certainly I, could. But, but, but I just, yes. But, I, I just want to say thank you for being a part of the show right uh, at late notice, right near the death to, to sort oh, of gush about it. And, and I, when and you said uh, maybe a Sunday, which was only a, you, you DM me like two days ago. I said, yes. Yeah. Let's do it. <laughs> when you came back and said, yes, I'm like, this guy loves this movie because anyone who's like ready, so ready. It's like, Oh no, I'm, I'm familiar. I'm familiar. I've been watching this movie for decades and I'm ready. I knew I was like, okay, he's, he's going to be one of our guys. If memory serves, what's the next movie you're studying? Zodiac. You mentioned this on one of your, yes, because that's another one. And yes, which also has a lot of the DNA of, of, uh, absolutely. Men in it. Yeah. Look, uh, there's some really famous, really insanely, uh, famous William Goldman mentees that went on to do great work. Uh, and it's and a couple of them are like Soderbergh and and uh, um, uh, Aaron Sorkin and Fincher, and you yeah. know they go on to make you know and Fincher and Sorkin obviously collaborate on the Social Network, which is probably one of the closest movies ever to this. You know, uh, to in in the same sort of making something that's dynamic, that's based on a true story, that's kind of unfolding in the news as they're making it, and then still is able to be resonant like a decade later. Um, uh, kind of a crazy feat in and of itself but yeah roger roger ebert called zodiac the older president's men of serial killer movies and i think that that's definitely zodiac's also a masterpiece and if if you need uh, any uh well anyway you know where to reach me if you need someone else well we can we're we're connected (laughs) there's there's going to be lots to talk about so be careful what you wish for um yes and and look, thank you so much for being a part of the show. It's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Let's stand by the boys, Blake. Stand by the boys. Fuck it. We'll stand by the boys. <laughs> Fuck it. We'll stand by the boys.
Would you look at that? James Abaniak, Dr. Venture on the Venture Brothers, Grant on Review, Arthur on Difficult People. Oh, that was fun. Really fun to find another clinical obsessive of this movie. Great, great to chat to James. James, thank you so much for being a part of the show. If you guys want to follow James, the best place to find him is on Twitter. It's at James Abaniak, which is James, the regular spelling, U-R-B-A-N-I-A-K. You can find him there tweeting um, about any and everything and sometimes about all the president's men. Thank you all so much for listening. For new listeners, thank you so much for being a part of the show. We have many episodes of many shows. One Heat Minute, Increment Vice, Josie and the Podcats, The Last 12 Minutes of the Mohicans, Miami Nice, and now coming up, Zodiac Chronicle when this show ends. Oh my goodness, lots to catch up on. If you want to follow us on socials, it's at Pod for the show. One Blake Minute on both Instagram and Twitter, oneheatminute.com. And if you can support the show, Patreon forward slash one heat minute for a whole bunch of extra stuff. We'll catch you on another episode very soon.